Welcome back to the Off the Ledge series of the Off Script Podcasts. My name is Mark Coffin. I'm Jesse Hitchcock. This week on Off the Ledge, we are going to do a bit of a variety show of sorts. So we spent episode one talking about how we got to this point, this very exciting election on PEI. Last week, we talked all about the referendum. This week is the last podcast we'll do before the election actually happens. Uh, we'll do another podcast next week to kind of digest all the results. Uh, but yeah, this week, we'll just kind of be going over some of the highlights of the campaign from our perspective. And another exciting thing about this week's episode is that we do have a special guest joining us. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce this person in an atypical way. Mark, are you ready? I'm ready. A lawyer by training, a semi-professional curler by night, this man is one of PEI's top political commentators. Who is Jonathan Greenan? Yay, Jonathan. So yes, Jonathan Greenan is our guest um, this week on the podcast, and we're really excited to have him. Uh, If you don't know Jonathan, I first worked with him uh, on the 2016 PR campaign, and and that's sort of where uh, we kind of became friends and um, fellow PI political nerds together. Jonathan was also a Jeopardy! champion last year. If you missed that, you should definitely go and watch it. It brought a lot of fame to the province of PEI. Um, And he's obviously an astute political commentator, so especially relating to things PEI politics. So we're really happy to have you here, Jonathan. Well, I'm incredibly flattered to be asked to uh, join you guys and uh, especially flattered to be identified (laughs) as one of the top political commentators on PEI. I'm not sure everyone would agree with that, but uh, I'll take it for now. Top tweeters? Will you settle for that? (laughs) Definitely a top tweeter. (laughs) Perhaps. Well, uh, maybe just for, for folks like myself who aren't from the islands and aren't familiar with y- yourself, Jonathan. Jesse's told me a lot about your keen level of knowledge of PEI politics and just wondering maybe if you can share with us and listeners w- where your interest and involvement in PEI politics uh, stems from. Well, on PEI, politics have been described as the provincial sport and uh, my family was no exception to that. Uh, growing up, we were a very uh, politically engaged household. Uh, My father was very involved with the Liberal Party of PEI for many years, and uh, politics was always something that was discussed around our kitchen table or uh, after dinner watching TV or on holidays, whatever the case may be. Uh, We were always uh, encouraged to uh, be up on the affairs of the day and to have thoughts and opinions and and viewpoints on the affairs of the day. Hmm. So, I continued to be involved myself in politics off and on over the years. I worked at both the PEI legislature and the House of Commons uh, in Ottawa as a parliamentary page. So I had the opportunity to see uh, the governing process up up close and personal and uh, have continued to be involved again off and on through the years, uh, both working partisan campaigns and then nonpartisan campaigns and causes such as the electoral reform uh, plebiscite issue two, three years ago, I guess now, where Jesse and I first became friends. Nice. And uh, I think you guys described yourselves as postpartisan or multipartisan on one of your earlier episodes. Yes, and yeah. I'd say that's, that's kind of where I am at now these days. So. All right, cool. Uh, and I'm curious because I, I think you've been listening to the podcast, wondering if, given your deeper level of knowledge of PEI politics, uh, is there anything major that we got wrong that's worth pointing out? No, I think you guys have been pretty much on point. There's the odd, you know, factoid here and there that might not quite be right. But uh, I think we've seen listeners chiming in, even people who might have had those factoids be about them. I'm thinking of Rob Lance, the former leader of the PC party. Uh, I didn't know he checked that. I think he did some fact checking for Jesse right after the first episode. So Uh, uh, he did. did, Yeah, I think it was one of the points that he that we said, can somebody fact check this on the episode? Oh, right. Yeah. He told us the author of the Democratic Reform paper. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't recognize the name. Well, the name that he gave us was the person who is uh, it's Paul Ledwell, who's the clerk of the Privy Council. Is that his title? That's right. But I think that Rob meant that in a like unofficial, like Paul drafted it kind of way. Cause I don't think the actual white paper has an author like listed. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's no official author of the white paper. It was essentially presented as government's work. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that it had many fathers and mothers, but mostly fathers, probably mostly fathers. Perhaps. The thing that I guess stood out for me this week uh, was watching the leaders debate hosted by the CBC, which is 
one of many leaders debates that happen uh, in a PEI election. But the the piece that caught my attention, which I think uh, following along with other folks on Twitter uh, caught their attention too, was just how civil the debate was. And for those of you that didn't catch it, here's a bit of a mashup of some of what happened during the debate. If you go over your time, I will gently... You could ask my kids about being gentle. <laughs> Move you along. Well, good evening, party leaders and fellow Islanders. It's always a pleasure to meet with my fellow leaders here and and to talk about the ideas and the policies and the various visions that we all share for this island. Thank you to my fellow leaders, uh, to all of you in attendance here tonight or watching from home. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, all three of, of, the, of the leaders have very good ideas on this, but I think we're forgetting one key component. The one thing I, I would agree that the current government has done a reasonable job to try to lessen the burden of the 4.4 cents on the gasoline. I give them that credit, 100%. To me, a living laboratory where health professionals can learn together because it's the learning together that will get them here and keep them here. Great. Yeah. It's a great idea for a faculty. <laughs> great idea, learning together. All right, I'm going to open it up for debate. And don't, don't wait for me. Oh. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I think Peter raises a, a very good point, and I, I think it would be remiss if we did not credit the current government. They have made some important strides. And Louise, I, I want to build on the uh, earlier comments that have been made, and this is about cooperation, it's about multiple parties being involved. Um, particularly affordable housing, and I agree with Joe that the government absolutely has a role because you need if to... And both of my colleagues on my left and on my right, I think we do agree on many of the things of, how, of what we have done and, and what we can do differently. We just have to make it a priority, not just during election time, but we have to do it every day. So that sounded pretty civil and uh, a lot of uh, back padding of one another uh, from the different leaders there. Um, didn't really jive with uh, a lot of what I've heard from insiders to PEI politics uh, because the politics of PEI has often been described to me as quite toxic or uncivil. Um, curious to the two of you who are closer to it than I am, it, would that be a fair representation of what it's like maybe after an election in PEI? I think that certainly this campaign has been very civil, uh, which has been a bit, bit of a surprise to me. I thought that it was going to be one of the more aggressive campaigns that we had seen. Mm. But uh, I think uh, a great number of people have seen uh, Peter Bevan Baker's rise in the polls as being associated with the civility and the, the different approach that he brought uh, or has been perceived as having brought to PEI politics. Mm. And I think uh, some, some strategists have uh, advised the other leaders to take that same sort of civil approach uh, uh. in their dealings. Now, it's funny that uh, you say that that clip sounded civil, and I'd say in general, the debate was very civil, but at certain points, it was some of the most heated rhetoric we've seen in the campaign so far. That's how civil the campaign has been. Uh, it's It's been really quiet. And I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, PEI politics is toxic uh, in the regular course. Uh, I think as with any legislature, a lot of what is uh, captured and broadcast is uh, perhaps the, the theatrical part of the day, question period. But uh, generally speaking, uh, legislators in PEI tend to get along more so than people think they do, I and, would say. And I think, too, that just kind of speaks to, you know, the social behavior of Islanders in general. I mean, it's a really, like, cordial place. Um, people are generally nice to one another, which was what makes it a great place to live. Um, but I, I could see how, in a political context, that can be sort of um, makes people hard to pin down or like hard to characterize. And I think Jonathan, you and I have discussed, like it can be, it can take kind of a keen eye to, um, when you're canvassing at the door, it can take a keen eye to know whether or not someone's going to support you or not, because, you know, people are nice and they'll be nice to your face, but then they'll, they'll vote the other way. So it's kind of a funny place. To Absolutely. Islanders will be very receptive to a candidate at the door uh, in the course of their canvas. And uh, many a candidate, I would say, has has left many a household thinking that's a for sure vote for me or votes for me and couldn't have been farther off the map. So, uh, mm. in, in fact, in our last federal election on PEI, uh, one of the losing candidates put out a press release the night before 
the vote, uh, extolling their soon-to-be victory the next day based on their canvas and the number of uh, committed voters that they had identified. And, uh, well, it wasn't wow. a Liberal candidate, and the Liberals swept the PEI ridings last time around. So Yeah, it w- that was pretty wild. It was sort of like we know based on how many decided voters we spoke to that we won the seat and um, and then it didn't go that way. So, but you know, you can't really fault mm. them for feeling that way because I can, I could envision how, how that would have been true at the door. I've heard in Nova Scotia, I think it's a similar, uh, similar thing with uh, electors, not necessarily being, it's funny, electors not necessarily being honest with their politicians, you know, it's usually the other way around. But I've heard uh, from people who, you know, manage canvases or do canvas trainings for parties, uh, give their candidates instructions to knock on doors, even if there's a sign up front for an opposing candidate, because of the fact that if somebody asks you to put a sign on their lawn, a lot of Nova Scotians are just too polite to say no. <laughs> they might not be voting for you, but they'll take your sign and, I guess, campaign resources. Well, a little trick of the trade from a partisan perspective is uh, uh, you get a candidate at the door who you don't intend to support, and you want to spend some time with that candidate and really get to know them <laughs> and, and hear what they think about all the issues. Bring them in for tea. It, it just so happens that every minute they're spending with you is not a minute they could be spending persuading someone else. But yeah, yeah, it, it's great to have those conversations. So that's great. I, I think one of the things you, you mentioned, Jonathan, that I wanted to pick up on is the idea that the other leaders may be being coached by their advisors to sort of mimic the civility of Peter Bevan Baker. And I think that's a really interesting um observation and it's something that kind of uh, you know the thought occurred to me too like i wonder like would this be different if this were another election where the liberals or pcs were leading and you know they often talk about the impact that a party like the green party has is when people see that you know eight five eight ten percent of people are willing to support a party like the greens but you know 10 years ago it was just really environmental policy that they were known for and you started seeing like Stefan Dion coming out with a green platform for his leadership campaign and a lot of, uh, you know, at least between the liberals and NDPs, a lot of mimicry, you could say, of what is Green Party policy or what has been at least the the main issues for which the Green Party has been known for. And interesting to see. I mean, I thought in that debate, if anybody, um, I wouldn't say he was uncivil, but certainly I would say Peter Bevan Baker wasn't holding back in terms of criticisms of the governing party and seemed to be just very comfortable in doing so. And I'd be curious to know like what kind of advice he's been getting in this context since he's at the head of the pack. I'd agree with that assessment that uh, Peter Bevan Baker was probably the most aggressive uh, of the leaders at the debate last night. And I understand though I didn't see it myself uh, that same dynamic was repeated this morning at yet another uh, Mm. leaders debate. Uh, This one was the, the Chamber of Commerce, the business community debate. Uh, There are so many debates. (laughs) But yes, I would say that uh, I I think in particular, the opposition parties have been especially um, cordial in their approach to dealing with the government's record. Certainly, I think a big part of the rise that the PCs have seen under their new leader, Dennis King, in the polls has been related to the, the personality that Dennis brings, which is, uh, I think, genuinely that of a nice guy, mm-hmm. uh, but it also has has mirrored uh, to a degree in Dennis's own very island rooted way that Peter Bevan Baker has seen success with. Mm. Uh, I think, generally speaking, the Liberals have run a very solid campaign. Uh, they haven't done damage to themselves. Mm. Uh, they're just facing, I think, a lot of. Uh, fatigue from an electorate and and challenges in in connecting uh, with voters, despite uh, a lot of metrics and a lot of indicators that that suggest that things are going pretty well in PEI, but uh, but there just seems to be a perfect storm working against them. Hmm. And I, I think too a part of a part of the tameness, you know, might be that the liberals are you know given that they've been trailing in the polls now for several polls and that their leader, Wade McLaughlin, has pretty low favorables. 
Um, I sort of think, you know, and liberals have been in power for a long time. They're just like Jonathan said, you know, like back to basics. They're not really, you know, coming out swinging. They're just kind of keeping things quiet, knocking on doors, you know, doing what, what needs to be done. But when you're not taking any risks, things aren't, aren't really going to get as kind of, you know, combative or, or feisty as we might see when both parties are scrapping to the bitter end. So I think mm. that's been kind of interesting too, to just see them kind of hunker down. And I think that might've been a strategy change from the early going because, uh, and I think you guys spoke about it on your first episode, the, the comment made on the night of the writ drop when uh, Premier McLaughlin referred to Dr. Peter Bevan Baker, 30 years as a dentist, as a career politician. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of, you know, fairly mild aside, got yeah. a lot of pushback in both the media and kind of the commentariat and, and the general public. And mm. uh, at the same time, there were some negative radio ads that the Liberal campaign had started running, attacking both the PCs and the Greens. And uh, I think there are still some radio ads going, but uh, but generally speaking, the tone has shifted, I would say, since that first week or even those first few days, it's it's become a lot uh, a lot less combative than it looked like it was going to go in the early going. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. That was a big shot across the bow compared to what the rest of the campaign has been. Yeah, and even the premier said in his uh, one-on-one interview with uh, our CBC Island Morning host, uh, Mitch Cormier, said that if he had the opportunity to do it again, he probably wouldn't make that same comment uh, about Peter hmm. Bevan Baker. So uh, I would say that there might have been a bit of a change of tactics. Well, it was also just a weird comment to make. Like, you know, it, it was very, uh, A, like, you know, typically we don't say that career politicians are people who like run and lose nine times. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, this is so weird. It was so bizarre. He's a dentist. It was just, I thought it was, it was also weird. Well, yeah. he was saying it at the nomination of the longest serving liberal member of the legislature who's wow. uh, been in elected politics either municipally or provincially for the better part of 30 years. So it was kind yeah, an of... An actual career politician. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole speech yeah. was... Uh quite a weird speech like it was the most um like the the points and i noticed this in the the debate too like there was a a few points where it was clearly a a pretty partisan room um on all sides because like the points at which people chose to applaud were often like the most mundane comments and i remember in the the speech that launched the election campaign uh from the premier there was like it had to be at least a two to three minute um piece on you know breaking this tie between whether a spring election happen should happen in April or in May on PEI and it was like he you know drew out this drama and it's one of those things like I think it's up there with like the names of electoral districts I know you guys tend to call them by number but in Nova Scotia they're sort of like they'll call them like Halifax Atlantic or you know um, like a, a string of eight community names hyphenated. And I feel like it's like people care as little about whether the election is in May or April as they do about what the name of the district is when it is not reflective of the community that that district kind of represents. But the MLAs are kind of the only ones that refer to it by those names. Sure. Odd moment. So odd. So one of the things that came up in last night's leaders debate on CBC was the issue of climate change and the carbon tax. It it did become a kind of big point of contention last night. But other than that, you know, I don't, I don't really know that it's receiving the, the attention that it, that it needs to. I mean, PEI is the province that's most susceptible to the effects of climate change, as we know. Um, you know, I read an interesting stat today that in 50 years, um, 50% of Lenox Island First Nation could be underwater. Like these are the predictions that we're working with. This is a social justice issue on PEI. Um, it's a environmental issue and everyone's just sort of, I mean, this aside, like the green party, the NDP both have strong climate platforms. So I'm not really including them in this, but, um, the liberal government previously sort of spinning its tires on this had a huge back and forth with the feds, letting the backstop be imposed. And now the PCs in their platform, um, say that they're aiming for this carbon neutral future, which I know has a lot of people excited, but there's no real actionable intent there. And so I think we're left with this big question mark of what is that going to look like? And at the debate last night, um, the PC leader, Dennis King, said something to the effect of, you know, about carbon pricing. Why are we, what's the point of just, 
giving, taking the money if we're just going to give it back to the people. The carbon pricing is two separate things. Carbon, the putting the price on carbon is to encourage us to do other things. And the, and the money that we get from carbon should be returned directly to islanders. Well, why don't you leave it in the pocket in the first place? Why do you got to give it back to them? Leave it with them. Leave it in their pocket. Let them help reduce carbon. Because that will not do anything to reduce carbon as long as we are dependent on... And that's the kind of commentary I would expect from maybe um, your average person who doesn't know like the economics of pricing mechanisms, but it's not the type of commentary I would expect from the leader of a party who says that they're aiming for a carbon neutral future in the province. I definitely hear what you're saying there, Jesse, and I think that uh, the issue of carbon pricing is one that is uh, both critical and essential to obviously our future as a province and a planet, uh, but also a complex one for the political parties. Um, I think that you see a difference between the parties that are approaching the issue uh, with a long-term view and vision, and then a difference, or, or and then a comparison with the parties who are more so looking at the issue uh, in terms of immediate political gain or harm uh, to their own electoral chances. Um, I think that the the provincial liberals and the federal liberals, I don't think you could say they're on the same page with respect to their approaches to carbon pricing, though there ultimately was an agreement reached so that the federal backstop wasn't imposed here in PEI. And with respect to the conservative position on carbon pricing, it's not really clear what that position is. Certainly in the legislature, leading up to the election, there seemed to be a pretty strong uh, position taken by their caucus against anything resembling a carbon tax. Uh, It sounds as though that's what Dennis King is saying. It's an issue that I've come to appreciate more and more as being an existential one. And I think that, you know, we deserve something a little more detailed and a little more comprehensive uh, from someone who may be the premier of this province next week. Well, and that's exactly the thing. Like, you know, we're having this similar conversation federally. It's like, okay, we may disagree on whether or not carbon pricing is, you know, the model. Perhaps it's too politically contentious. Um, But then what are we going to do? Because, you know, I think we can all agree that this is an issue and it's an issue kind of disproportionately affecting uh, PEI and other coastal provinces. So, you know, if not that, then what, I guess, is sort of a resounding question that I I still have. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, I agree with Jesse. And then there's a part of me that's like, I'm just generally jealous that PEI is a province where this gets to be discussed during an election campaign. Because just thinking back to, uh, I feel like I make a lot of comparisons to Nova Scotia, which I'm sure PEI and Islanders are not um, (laughs) always pleased to hear. But it's one of those things where like, I see it like up there with like the leaders debates. It's like, it's kind of funny that it's happening. But I'm also like envious of the fact that like you guys are having this discussion during an election campaign. And I was thinking back as I was watching the debate last night, even before the question of climate change came up, like from the moderators, like environmental issues were kind of woven throughout the the whole debate. I'm sure that has something to do with the fact that the Green Party is in the lead. So there's an incentive to to talk about environmental issues, no matter what party you are. Um, but I don't think any, like there may have been one kind of like throwaway question in some of the debates we've had in Nova Scotia uh, amongst leaders in the last five to 10 years. But I can't remember like anybody making it, you know, a key platform plank, like there's talk about like more renewables in terms of uh, what Nova Scotia power is producing. Um, but like they include in that biomass, which doesn't have really any positive effects because we're cutting down forests to burn biomass as power generation. So even the fact that like you guys get to have this discussion, I know we've only got like what, 12 years left to really you know, turn around our fossil fuel consumption and avoid runaway climate change. But the fact that it's a conversation in a election in a place as tiny as PEI, I hope, I hope that, I hope that's promising. I mean, I hope it's enough to, to get it on the table. I think it makes sense too, in terms of PEI's history, because we are a province that uh, has traditionally been so dependent on our two primary industries, which are directly associated with our land and with our, our water resources, being agriculture and fisheries 
And right. uh, the fact that uh, both our parties, and actually probably even more so the progressive conservatives, if you look historically, have been incredibly dedicated to uh, policies that preserve and protect our our natural heritage, our natural assets in terms of uh, our soil, our 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 water, uh, to ensure that that what we have is there for our use and for future use uh, of generations of Islanders to come. So it, it is a positive mm. thing. And yeah. I certainly hope that whoever is in government after uh, next Tuesday's vote uh, does remember that, you know, it's, it's about stewardship of the province going forward and making sure that whatever choices on a policy front they make, uh, it's, it's about our long-term gain as well as uh, short-term uh, prosperity. Hmm. I guess it, it does definitely, I think this, it's not symbolism for PEI to think of the idea that there's not the potential for infinite growth, uh, especially when it comes to natural resources. Partly that is easier for people, I think, to, cons- to I guess, integrate into their understanding of economics by the fact that you're an island and there literally are edges to how how much certain things can expand course Nova Scotia will be an island within probably our lifetimes as well but (laughs) not yet so astute listeners who remember episode one might remember that I was mentioning how in the previous legislature um, we sort of saw this pattern where you know there's three counties on PEI Prince County in the western part of the province typically elects elected liberal MLAs um, and Kings County the eastern side of the province Um, had elected uh, entirely conservatives in the last legislature. And um, that was an interesting factoid. But then last week we got some polling and the province-wide numbers are what what we've been seeing essentially. Green's in the lead uh, with 35%, PC's second with 32%, Liberals with 29%, the NDP with 3%. So pretty pretty close, but with the Green's in the lead. Um, The Premier, preferred choice is Premier, same sort of thing, like Peter's leading by quite a lot, 37% um, prefer him as premier. But the interesting thing is that when we look at the county level polling, um, Prince County, you know, polling very strongly for the Greens, 40%, and then 29 for the PCs, 27 for the Liberals. Similar sort of breakdown in Queens County. But then in Kings County, which I had mentioned previously to be um, exclusively conservative at the moment, um, is polling 41% for the liberals um and then pc's 35 percent and greens only 23 percent. so a really interesting sort of spike for the liberal party there um which i was definitely shocked by when i read the poll my feelings on that are because kings county is such a small part of the island population uh the cra or rather the narrative research poll uh surveyed 539 voters and 468 of them were decided. Well, Kings County is only about 10 to 15% of the population. So on a province-wide level, the margin of error is plus or minus 4.5%. In Kings County, I'm thinking that margin of error is significantly larger. Uh, Just because, as you say, Jesse, historically speaking, and especially in recent years, that area of the province has been very strongly PC. It's not entirely PC right now. Uh, They have an outgoing liberal MLA from Montague who's not re-offering, the former Minister of Finance. Um, And actually, there's a second seat that was won by a coin flip, but that's pretty PC as well um, in Kings County. So the, the, the Kings County numbers, I think, are somewhat skewed by a margin of error question. Um, the Prince County numbers are really surprising to me as someone who's from Prince County. I wouldn't have expected to see the Greens quite that high uh, in in what is, as you say, a traditionally strong liberal part of the province. Now, it does capture the second city of PEI being Summerside, where the Greens are uh, very well organized and, and in contention for uh, perhaps all three of the seats that... Uh, that touch on the city of Summerside. And then I'm told by people that there are also very strong green candidates uh, east of Summerside in Borden, 
Kinkora and then west of Summerside in a couple of very traditional liberal districts. So so maybe that 40% number is real. But again, Prince County is about a third of the province. So if the, if the sampling from uh, the polling company is consistent, then the margin of error would be higher there as well. So it's it's going to be right down to the wire, I think, on Tuesday night. These numbers are are showing what could be a minority. They're also showing what could be, based on the glory that is first past the post, a big majority <laughs> for someone. Yeah, it's uh, uh, while you guys were uh, sharing those thoughts, I, I didn't recognize w- when you said the name of the polling company, uh, Narrative Research, and then I did some Googling and realized for those who have the same question as me, who is Narrative Research, it's the same company that did the poll we noted earlier in this series, Corporate Research Associates, is just now known as Narrative Research. Yeah, I think that's about um, 48 hours old, so... Oh, okay. Wow. Um, they're really. I noticed that in the report too. And I was like, interesting. They didn't go with CRA. <laughs> yeah. But it, even just looking at the numbers now, the greens are 35. The margin of error, as you mentioned, is four and a half percent. So the progressive conservatives are at 32 and the liberals are at 29. So they're all within the margin of error of their nearest competitor. And NDP are at 3%, which is again, a big jump down from where they were the last election. So knowing what, as you referenced, Jonathan, what we know, but first past the post, it could be a big majority or it could be one of these elections where like only 30 or 40% of the people in PEI ended up voting for somebody who sits in the legislature. Yeah. The, it's going to be really interesting to play around with, with the numbers to this. We did uh, a bit of infographicking post New Brunswick election and produced a bit of a chart just sort of explaining how many ways that New Brunswickers didn't get represented based on how the votes in that very tight multi-party election uh, with with four parties ultimately earning seats in the legislature and how voters really lost the the impact of that their votes could have had. So I feel like next Tuesday night, I'm going to have a spreadsheet and trying to produce some, uh, I guess, meaning uh, in terms of helping people understand what First Past the Post has done. Um, in that election. I feel like I might not be the only one given what else is going on uh, on PEI right now. Well, and it'll be interesting too. I know we already talked about this, but, you know, depending on what the results of the referendum are, um, that'll be an interesting sort of thing for you to add to your spreadsheet if it only wins in 15 out of the 27 districts, for example. It's going to be a spreadsheet with a lot of tabs. So I know margin of error, of course, um, it's high and, and PEI is small, so you can never really know. But um, this is a way that we, we maybe haven't really been framing the, the questions so far. But so in Kings County, again, the Greens are only polling at 23%, which is well below the province-wide numbers. Um, mm. Do we think that there's a reason that the Greens would be polling low in in Kings County like versus asking why are the Liberals polling high? Like, Is there something to that, I wonder? To me, I think the green strength, with possible exception of obviously Peter Bevins Baker's riding, which is a rural riding, and maybe that Borden Kinkora riding, I think that the greens are especially strong in PEI's two cities of Charlottetown and Summerside, and I'm not confident that they have a whole lot of strength outside of those. Uh, so Kings County would be a very rural place. Uh, I think in terms of uh, green targets down there, from what I understand, they believe they have a chance in District 2, which is Georgetown, formerly Georgetown St. Peter's. I'm not sure if it's, I think it's Georgetown Pawnell now. Uh, but the incumbent there is Stephen Myers, who is, uh, I would say, a, a, a strong advocate for his community, a, a big voice in the legislature, I would say. And uh, that's also the part of the province, while he's not running there, that's where Dennis King is from. And Hmm. about uh, one in 10 of the 5,000 members the Conservative Party has signed up post-leadership race, I understand, hail from District 2. So I'm not convinced that the Greens, even though they have uh, what they believe to be a star candidate in that district, I don't think they're really in contention there. I I think that unless the Liberals squeak out a district in Kings County, those five seats should all be going blue. Hmm. I don't know anything about the counties of PEI. So I have little to add on this, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. Queens County to me is, you know, when you look at the polling numbers, it's more measured. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, for those who are listening and don't also aren't familiar with the counties, um, Charlottetown, the capital city is in Queens County. Um, but even in Charlottetown, it's seeming like it's going to be a bit of a, a, a mixed bag. Um, you know, there's even, I think, one or two districts that have four or five way races. So it was some independents running. We have a popular um, person who ran as a new Democrat in a previous election, now running as a liberal. Um, there's a lot of kind of interesting things going on in, in Charlottetown. And I honestly, no matter how much I think about it, uh, I think it's going to be a nail biter the night of. There's an expression in, uh, uh, in Nova Scotia politics that the ideological spectrum in Nova Scotia could fit on the head of a pin? I think that is pretty true to PEI's traditional uh, two parties. Uh, and and mm. that's in part what makes this election so interesting is that perhaps for the first time in modern island history anyway, we have uh, a genuine choice, I think, on the ballot. And, uh, and, and unless or until we saw that different option being the Green Party in power, it's hard mm. to say how different they really would be, I think. But uh, certainly they present themselves as being something different. And uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not PEI, which has no history of supporting third parties outside of one single election in one single district, uh, whether or not mm. Islanders are prepared to to cast that ballot for someone outside of their traditional options. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think part of it, this is my assessment of, I guess, both provinces, but I think we're both in provinces that are known for politeness and civility, but at least in Nova Scotia also, you know, we have a reputation for being the Mississippi or the Alabama of the North, like a, a fairly, not overtly racist, but talk to anyone of color uh, about their experience, especially in rural parts of this province, like they they understand it to be a very different reality. And I think maybe in politics that comes out as sort of like when somebody throws an idea out there, there's like just an inclination to say, yeah, let's try that or let's explore that. That's a lot stronger than like people's personal sense of values. And I wonder if maybe part of what's happening, part of like the end of this process of adding more voices and more diverse voices with different ideas is that it forces the traditional parties to really confront what their actual core values are. I think that is a reckoning that either has to come or has already come uh, for the Mm. traditional parties. Certainly in his leadership race that just, wrapped up a couple of months ago, Dennis King Hmm. continuously spoke of the need to do politics differently and the fact that Islanders don't like the way things have always been done and the manner in which our politics are conducted and have been conducted and uh, that people want to see parties working across the aisle and, and collaborating on addressing the real issues facing the province. And I think that obviously was received well within his leadership race, and he's continued to express that going mm. forward. I think the Liberals being in power have been less inclined to, to do things differently. They're, they have their hands on the levers of power, and they've governed uh, with their plan in mind and, and generally have followed through on that plan. Uh, that said, I think that uh, the Liberals started to see problems in their mandate uh, when they failed to honour the vote after the plebiscite. And uh, if you look back to the polling numbers, you'll see in the former CRA uh, polling numbers, <laughs> they take a nosedive in the in the polling periods immediately after that decision of November 2016. And uh, even today, uh, the new numbers from narrative research show that uh, young islanders in particular are favoring the Green Party. So I think it's it's a generational thing. I think it's uh, a, a spirit of the times thing. We're seeing upheaval and, uh, and, and a desire to th- see things done differently than they always have been around the world. And I think in PEI, it's manifesting not as reaching for right-wing populism the way it is elsewhere, but it's just going for a third option because mm. essentially it's been red or blue for the entirety of our history. So now that there mm. is another choice on a seeming, seemingly viable choice on hand, people are giving it a good hard look. 
Hmm. What was so interesting about, as you mentioned, you know, the, the plebiscite decision to not go ahead with um, MMP kind of started that downward trend for the liberals. And I think I remember at that time, so many people, it was so interesting because it wasn't a policy point or a policy decision, like on a particular topic that was offensive to people. It was the actual act of being asked a question and then not being taken seriously. Yeah. You, know, you know, like people just, people just felt you so, so frustrated by that. And I remember people who don't even, you know, follow electoral reform or know the nuances or ins and outs of, of that, of that topic were just, you know, totally offended by the idea that we would be asked and then that decision wouldn't be honored. So it's almost like a question of, you know, political culture and, and, and integrity and like how we relate to our governing parties more than any, you know, one policy topic. It was so interesting. Well, I think the same thing happened federally too. Like when the liberals broke their promise on electoral reform and tried to sell it as there wasn't consensus it, like I remember being totally blown away by people who have like never showed an interest in electoral reform at all, clearly having observed and, you know, read enough on, uh, what had happened, uh, that, you know, they were pissed just because it was such a clear promise from the federal liberals and it wasn't followed. And, you know, I had even a few liberal friends who said like, I'm canceling my donations, my monthly donations of five bucks or whatever, you know, nominal amount to the party because I just don't like the way this was handled, even though I really don't care. I didn't even want electoral reform, but I just yeah. don't like the way this was handled, which I think is like, I mean, I think that's promising and like promising thing, I think for, for voters to be acting that way or for like party members to be acting that way. And I think, you know, if I'm ever in a situation where like, I disagree with a policy, but like, I'm disappointed with the process. Like I hope I can be as mature as a lot of those people were, at, you know, at that time. And, you know, we can't ask a lot of the electorate, like there's, a bunch of other stuff going on in their lives. But to see things like that, it's like, oh, a little, like, I might be very upset with the process, but it's kind of reassuring to know that, like, there are people watching sometimes. Totally. So I thought to close out the podcast, uh, I might just ask the two of you, given your wealth of knowledge of all things PEI politics, a few sort of prediction questions uh, as to how you're leaning and, and what might happen. Um, the first one, so we know what happens if... Um, any of the parties win a majority, but I'm curious about what's going to happen if n- no party uh, wins majority in this election, which I think would be a first or at least the first in a, in a long, long time. And I think I'll also put it out there that if it happens, I think we should call it a hung legislature and introduce that <laughs> term to the PEI vernacular. I, I'm pretty sure that's the correct uh, Westminster system term for it. So it would be a hung parliament in the UK. So I think right. hung legislature makes sense. Well, but I've never seen them do like projections where they say we're projecting a majority, like they'll say we're projecting a majority government, but when it's not a majority, they always just say it's a minority government for whoever has the most seats. Well, I can't remember what That's they right. did in New Brunswick. Um, I don't think they use the term hung legislature, but. No, I don't think they did. Yeah. Anyways, what do you think is going to happen if no party comes out with a clear majority? I will kick it off with my hope and then, John, and then Jonathan can um, take that to task and share what will likely actually happen procedurally and pragmatically. But <laughs> my hope is always that there will be a minority government and it will be stable or functional such that um, on a bill by bill basis or on an issue by issue basis, parties, you know, vote depending on that particular issue. So perhaps it's a PC minority, the Greens get a substantial number of seats, and sometimes the Green Caucus decides to support a PC-sponsored bill. Sometimes the Green Caucus supports a Liberal-sponsored bill or any of the possible iterations therein. Um, That's like a pseudo-proportional outcome, which maybe is the best we can hope for given the results of the referendum, uh, if they, if it goes that way. But that's always like what I would like to see happen. What do you think, John? I think that we could have absolute chaos if no party <laughs> wins the majority next Tuesday. Uh, from a procedural standpoint, the Premier, Premier McLaughlin, remains Premier until mm. someone else is sworn in uh, or he resigns. 
So he would have, assuming he wins his seat and the liberals have something close to a workable arrangement uh, to hold the confidence of the House, he would get the first opportunity to meet the House, just as we right. saw in New Brunswick, where Premier Gallant tried to cobble <laughs> something together and 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 maintain confidence of the House. I wouldn't be shocked if the Greens supported Premier McLaughlin uh, to continue, provided they could work something out, whether or not mm. there would be any ability to work that out. I don't have any insight as to where the parties stand and, and on what kind of footing they are with each other, either before or after having run a hard fought campaign. But, uh, it would shock me for there to be a grand coalition. I used to joke about the grand coalition. I'm sure Jesse's heard me talk about it sometimes. Clarifying. Yeah. Uh, and that would be a situation where the two traditional parties determined that they would come together in one uh, in one grand coalition to govern the province uh, uh, together, which, you know, talking about the ideology of PEI politics fitting on the head of a pin might make sense, but there's also at the base uh, partisan level, um, the grassroots level, there's a lot of enmity between liberals and conservatives going back generations. So uh, it probably won't happen. Um, If the conservatives uh, outpace the liberals and and Premier McLaughlin resigns or chooses not to try and face the House, um, it wouldn't surprise me for the Greens to back them. Uh, and and work together in some form of maybe not a formal supply and confidence arrangement as you see in BC, but again, as Jesse said, set a bill by bill approach. Whether the Greens can form government as the lead partner in a minority situation, I don't know. I'm not mm. sure whether either the Liberals or the PCs would support them. Uh, and if they couldn't get that support, and if you didn't have a grand coalition, then you'd be back to the polls soon enough. The really chaotic scenario that I just thought of (laughs) earlier today would be if the referendum is successful in winning 60% of the districts and gaining 50% plus one of the popular vote province-wide, which three of the party leaders, everyone but the premier, has said they will honor the vote, Mm -hmm. presumably in a situation where the liberals don't have a majority – the Conservatives and Greens together could craft legislation to enact MMP in advance of the next election, which could be a year away. So that might be the one and only piece of business that came before the House before we were back to the polls hmm. in a situation where the plebiscite success, or the referendum is successful. Wait, so the Premier hasn't committed to honoring the vote if it meets the threshold? Premier has committed to honoring the vote if it meets the threshold, but the Premier doesn't have a great record on that point. Okay, right. Um, So I I think, and whether or not the Premier would put that above and beyond everything else if he was in a position to to command the authority of the House or to to maintain the confidence of the House. Right, if it's a volatile... I I I don't know that he would prioritize that as one of his major issues in moving the province forward. Um, yeah, it could be just, oh, we had a minority government, it was short, we didn't get it done kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I know too, there is a ad running, a radio ad running now or starting soon by one of the yes uh, advocates. And that ad says something to the effect of three party leaders have said that they are voting yes for MMP. One party leader has not. And mm. That, that party leader, according to that ad, is the premier. So I, I think it would it would be political suicide for the liberals not to honor the vote if it meets the threshold. Yeah. Um, and I would hope certainly that they see that that would not be a wise move in the shorter long term for the party's long term success in PEI. That doesn't speak to whether or not they want it to pass or not, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that that's sort of what that ad is getting at. Like, yeah. yes, probably they're all going to honor it if it if it comes to that, but whether or not they actually want it to come to that is the is the yeah. question. Yes. And yeah. who's saying that like the liberals wouldn't necessarily move ahead and implement it if the referendum threshold is reached, but like 
fine tune the system in such a way that like the other parties will not want to support a bad MMP system. Cause it's totally well, that, possible to like screw it up. You still have to get the bill through the legislatures. So. Yeah. yeah. And there's and, still and, a lot to be formalized. You know, it, it lay, the referendum act lays out the base pieces, but there's still a lot of, you know, things that could be flushed out in there. Yeah. Cause there's no thresholds for parties in that, or is that embedded in the, there's no thresholds, there's no thresholds in the formula. Uh, the, and and that whole process by which suddenly the referendum electoral systems referendum act came fully formed before the legislature, uh, (sighs) almost a year and a half after (laughs) the plebiscite without any public consultation, it, it really wasn't a process designed at putting something substantive before the public to consider. Um, I would think that to do it right, and if if this is going to be our new system moving forward, then I would hope our legislators are committed to doing it right. You really need to take the time necessary to do it right. You need to bring in experts. You need to have some public involvement in, in crafting the system. And uh, it's probably not something that would get done in time for the next election if we do have some kind of minority mishmash right, after yeah. next week. But uh, I think that, you know, this this debate isn't going away if we have a minority government, but but the threshold is met. And even more chaotic, perhaps, is if 50 percent plus one is met, but only 13 of 27 districts approve it. Then who knows where we're going from there? So, yeah, well, that was my next question is, will there be will the yes side win the referendum? And since I haven't really weighed in much on the other two, I'll weigh on this one. I think it's impossible. It's such a high threshold, the 60% of districts voting 50% plus one. It just seems like so many people could support it. I mentioned last week, just running some simple math, um, not getting too detailed, but I think easily, you know, 70% of people could support it, but not in the right places. And that could tank it. I may be in the minority of people who support MMP in saying that I think the threshold is actually reasonable. Um, it's important if you're bringing in a change like this to the to the electoral system, which is one of the fundamental building blocks of island democracy. I think that it's important that it have broader geographic support than uh, might be obtained by just gaining a 50% plus one majority, which you could almost get through, say, overwhelming support in the province's five or six largest municipalities. Um, It's important, I think, that there is some buy-in from rural PEI on this topic. And the the 60% of districts equates to 17 of the 27, uh, which which isn't impossible. In the plebiscite, 22 of 27 districts uh, ultimately supported MMP on the final count, the fourth count, where yeah, it but how many supported it on the first count? Thirteen of twenty-seven supported it on the first count, and I would say that the issue is much more alive than it was before the plebiscite vote because mm. of all the attention it received in the immediate aftermath when the vote wasn't honored, right. and the the polling that has been done on this issue has shown that. Islanders to the tune of about 50% are willing to support the change. So it's it's going to be closer than I think a lot of people expect. Will they get to the 17 districts? I don't know. Uh, but I think there's a chance of 50% plus one province-wide. And do you think that if it gets 50.1% province-wide in 15 out of 27 districts, do you think that that gives anybody license to make that decision if they win a majority government? Or do you think it's dead in the water? If If I were in their shoes, I would advocate for making that change. But that's a decision that every elected official is going to make for themselves. So it's, I guess I I understand what you're saying about the, the geographic piece, just to go back to that for a minute. The first point I'll make is that I think generally this convention we've come to in Canada around putting these questions around uh, electoral systems to a vote isn't a particularly helpful one because I think it automatically frames up the issue as one that like the majority should be able to decide on. I agree with that. It's unfortunate because I think for me, the issue, it's a fundamentally like it's a human rights, it's a civil rights issue and it's not one that 
directly leads to harm to the individual in the sense that like you're physically threatened or your individual identity is threatened. But like the idea that, you know, we have a right to vote, we have a right to effective representation. You know, I would stop short of saying that even the majority of people should be able to take that away or, or, or enhance that. Right. And in this case, it's like by the way the threshold is structured that 60% of writings need to support it. It almost says like, no, 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 to get your rights, not only do you need a majority of support, you need a super majority of people behind you that believe you, you are entitled to those rights. But as soon as we went down the road of the referendum, we sort of um, lose the ability to argue on the grounds that this is a rights issue versus um, an issue that we can all sort of like find a consensus on. I'm not sure there are other issues like where we take a consensus building approach or any kind of like public engagement approach. Like usually I think when there have been court decisions on rights issues, well, like to Nova Scotia, for instance, there was a court ruling against um, the governments and how they redistributed boundaries because in Nova Scotia, the Acadians and African Nova Scotian communities um, both had what were called protected ridings, uh, which uh, were meant to, they're slightly smaller or significantly smaller than all the other ridings so that it was more likely that an Acadian or an African Nova Scotian individual would get elected and be able to bring voice. We have one of those ridings in PEI as well for the Acadian Oh, do you? Is it for Acadians? Yeah, in District 24 for the Acadian community. Okay, interesting. So yeah, the, they took it out of the legislation in 2012 when they redrew the, the boundaries and then the court ruled just, I think, two or three years ago uh, that that was an unconstitutional move and they had to revisit it. So then they did a public consultation with African Nova Scotians, Acadians, and the general population about, okay, how do we effectively represent these communities? And now they've just come out with their latest report, which is basically adding more protected writings so that those communities can get more representation. Um but I feel like there needs to be some sort of directive or like um, rights-based foundation for these processes to actually be effective at building an electoral system that works for all and doesn't compromise on some, um, you know, basic values that are set out in, in the beginning, which is probably part of what went wrong with the federal process and you know every other process that's tried to figure out how to get a better electoral system. Brexit is giving us a great example of the perils of governance by referendum. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. What a great case study to be able to point to, to warn people. Yeah. It's like you have to, I mean, you're asking people to envision this like long-term outcome and, and what it will, it, what it will do to their day-to-day lives. It's, it's yeah, not, not an easy ask. Well, that is another episode of the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Jonathan, for joining us for the conversation. It was great to have you with us. Thanks. It was great to tag along for the conversation. For those of you listening, if you'd like to send us feedback on anything you've heard on the show, feel free to tweet at us. Uh, you can find Springtide at Springtide Co. Uh, you can find me at Mark Coffin. You can find Jesse at Jesse Hitchcock. And Jonathan, where can people find you? You can find me at JB Greenan. All right. And uh, if you want to send us an email, if you're not into Twitter, you can reach us at offscript at springtide.ngo. Subscribe to the podcast. We're going to do at least one more episode to wrap this up. And then depending on how uh, interesting or boring the results are, uh, we may do more. So subscribe to the podcast, search for Offscript wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And you can also listen to the podcasts just straight from our website, springtide.ngo. If you scroll down, you'll find the latest podcast episodes. We'll see you all next week. This is a time for a choice to decide, will we go forward or will we not? go forward. There's also something else that we have to decide. In Prince Edward Island, since Confederation, spring has been a popular time for elections. And as history tells us, we actually have a tie between the month of April and the month of May. We've had eight April elections and eight May elections. So folks, I think it's time that we not only choose 
our future for our province, that we choose a liberal government for four more years, but we break that tie. And since we're here and everybody's geared up and we have these great volunteers and enthusiasm and uh, momentum, I just have to reach down here. Somebody left, somebody left an envelope under this desk. But since we're here and since it's time to break that tie, let's break it in favor of an April election. Yeah.